0: 4, we're continuing to work our way through this book, and we'll just read a couple verses and then we'll pray again and get into the study. Hebrews chapter 4, start reading in verse 1, it says, therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had great news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. But for we who have believed, we enter that rest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is before us this morning, and we're asking that you do a deep work in us, Lord. Lord, as was already prayed, we want everything that you have for us, nothing more, but nothing less. And we see that in your word today, there's some warnings, some admonishments, and I ask that you would give us soft hearts. Lord, as we've been worshiping you in song, and now we worship you in the studying of your word and the preaching of your word, give us soft, worshipful hearts to receive from you. And Lord, we just ask that you would help us to let down our guard. We confess that we are often conniving and sneaking and that we're so good at hiding our sin from everybody else. But all things are laid bare before your eyes. Help us to stop kidding ourselves, Lord. You know and you love us still. You want to heal our wayward ways. And so we're asking as individuals and as a congregation that you have mercy on us That you'd bring us nearer to you today, that you'd reveal more of your heart to us, Lord, that you'd make us a people that are softer in our hearts and more attentive in our spirits and more tuned to you with our ears, that you'd steady our feet to walk the course that you set before us. Lord, we're living in a world where it seems like everything is against us walking in intimacy with you, and so we're asking for strength and for grace and for perseverance, And go ahead, Lord, and fire shots across our bow. Go ahead and warn us today about those areas where we're drifting, where we're developing hardness. And minister to those places by your Holy Spirit. Soften them. Do a deep work in us. And Holy Spirit, Jesus said that you are the teacher of all things, and so we ask that you would come and instruct us. I submit to you my mind and my mouth. We beg of you together that every syllable that comes from this mouth would be directly from your throne. What we want here is the pure, unadulterated word of God. And yet we understand that we're humans and we meddle things up. So we're just asking that you would prevail in this place. Deliver your word and do a work in our hearts, Lord, and send us back forth into this world more on fire, more in love with you. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, verse 1, once again, reads this way. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Notice the word therefore. Anytime in studying the Bible you come to the word therefore, you want to take note of what the word therefore is therefore. Therefore. It's very important. It denotes that there's a context in which this passage is set. And when you see the word, therefore, it is set within the immediate context. That is to say, our understanding of the previous verses has a bearing on our understanding and application of the verses before us. So what came before chapter 4, verse 1, but chapter 3? And what do we see in chapter 3? In chapter 3, we have primarily a warning. We were reminded, the original recipients of the letter, and subsequently us, we, we were reminded of the fact that ancient Israel erred with regards to their faith at a pivotal moment in their corporate life. At the moment of decision, at the crux of it all, when the Lord had brought them out of Egypt through the wilderness and to the border of the promised land at a place called Kadesh Barnea. We remember from Numbers 13 and 14 that they didn't enter in because of disbelief or because of a lack of faith or said differently but very rightly because of distrust. They didn't enter in because they didn't trust the Lord. They failed to attain to what God had for them at a pivotal moment in their lives. And so the author here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, full of compassion for the people, is warning them, don't fall into the same error of ancient Israel. And and said explicitly, the warning is this, don't let your heart get hard. We've got to be on guard against hard hearts. What we want to cultivate as God's people is a soft heart, a tender heart. And we want to cultivate a heart that says yes to God. Amen? We want to be a people that are ready to say yes to God. Because there's a real danger in saying no. And we all do. I mean, if we're going to be honest, we all say no from time to time, probably more than we would like to. We might not say it explicitly. No, Lord. We (laughs) usually don't do that. But in the things that we refuse to do, the things that we don't do, the things we won't give up, or the things we continue to do, we're saying no to the Lord. And the problem with that is this. The Bible seems to teach that every time we say no to the Lord, there's a hardening that happens to our hearts. There's a callousing that takes place and a searing of the conscience that happens. And and so we we begin to break off the sensitivity that we have to the Lord, the the readiness to hear, the readiness to respond, the, the ears that are tuned to the Spirit and the feet that are ready to walk the course. Every time we say no, that heart gets a little bit harder, a little more calloused. And the problem with that is that once the heart gets hard, it begins to develop disbelief. And disbelief always leads to disobedience, which leads to a breaking off of intimacy, which leads to a not attaining to, by faith, all the promises of God. Remember last week's sermon from Pastor Ryan? They are already ours positionally, but practically, we need to lay hold of them by faith. But when we're saying no to God, we're hardening our heart. We're removing ourselves from the place of blessing. We move into a place of disbelief. It might not be a grand apostasy. It might just be in little areas where we don't believe or trust the Lord anymore. And that leads to disobedience. And the key word that I want to zero in on is trust. You see, saying no to the Lord is not trusting the Lord. Every time we say no, it's an expression that we're not trusting Him. We are either doubting or casting aspersion on His wisdom or His character. The Lord wants us to do something. No. In effect, we're saying, God, I don't believe in your wisdom, that that's right for my life. I hear what you're saying. I see the wisdom in what you're saying, but I'm pretty sure I can pull it off. I'm pretty sure I can work it out, and I could get a little work around here, and I could kind of make it happen. We do that all the time. That's not trusting the Lord. That's casting aspersion upon his sovereign wisdom, and when we disobey, when we disbelieve, It's mistrust either doubting his wisdom or secondly, as I mentioned, his character. We may may not be trusting that he's really good to see us through or that he's really able, he's really powerful to get us there or he's really sovereign to work that situation out. And so it's a dangerous place to be saying no to the Lord. It's dangerous in what it communicates theologically, and it's dangerous in what it accomplishes practically. That hardening of that heart, that drifting, drifting into disbelief in small areas that always leads to disobedience. And what happens is, ultimately our perspective becomes skewed. We stop seeing things with Holy Spirit clarity. It's illustrated best in Numbers chapter 14 at Kadesh Barnea, where they were supposed to enter into the promised land, you'll remember. And, and uh, the Israelites made this insane statement. They said, It would have been better for us if we just died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Let's get a new leader, let's kill Moses, and let's go back to Egypt. That is utter insanity. They were wholly and completely enslaved in Egypt. But you see, they had totally lost perspective. They had totally lost perspective. And the reason that happened is if you study the book of Exodus and Numbers, you'll see that there were 10 times, including that one, where they said no to the Lord. And every time they said no, the heart got hardened, the disbelief grew, and the disobedience was burgeoning. No, 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 Ten times no to the Lord. And it led them to such a loss of perspective and a place of disbelief. They said, it would be better if we just died than to be here on the edge of the promised land. And Paul wrote in Corinthians that the things that happened to Israel are examples for you and I because we're just like them. We got the same God, We've got the same funky attitudes, the same human tendencies. We are just like them. And unless we check ourselves with regards to drifting and saying no in the hardness of heart, we can get to that skewed perspective. And that's when we make these huge life mistakes. These giant mistakes that are irreversible, really, and their temporal consequences. I mean, they went to the point of no return. It was irreversible. The temporal consequences. You'll remember that Moses interceded for them and God forgave them. God forgives. He's so merciful. But the temporal consequences were fixed in place. They would not enter the promised land. They would wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die off and only the new generation would go in. They were so ripped off and it started with one no back in Exodus. And so it says here, therefore, with that context, let us fear while the promise remains of entering into his rest, while there is still the opportunity of entering into the rest. The land of Canaan was a proverbial place of rest. It's real, literal, historical, geographical account of them entering into the promised land, but it has spiritual, meaningful significance for you and I, and it was a foreshadowing or a picture of our salvation and our abundant life in Christ. And it says, therefore, let us fear while we still have opportunity of entering in. Now, what does it mean to fear the Lord? We who are Christians, which is most of us here, I hope there's some non-Christians here, but those of us who are Christians, we, we generally like the part of fearing the Lord that's like, well, just means reverence the Lord, and it's a reverential all, and ooh, that, that type of thing of, of fear of the Lord. We like that, and we want to stick with that definition. And the Bible does speak about that. And we should fear the Lord in that way. But did not Jesus say in Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, Jesus Christ is the judge. And he's a righteous judge. And he is to be feared. When Jesus comes again, The Bible is explicit. He will right every wrong. He is coming as the judge with the royal diadem upon his head. And he will right every wrong. He is to be feared as the judge. Now, those of us who have accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ through his finished work on the cross, his substitutionary death, where he took my place because my sin earned me death. He took my place upon the cross, died that substitutionary death, rose again to offer me new life. Those of us that have accepted that and who are abiding in Christ and maintain belief in him, we have no worry of the fear of hell. We have every reason to rejoice. And the Lord says to us in Luke 12, 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And so the Lord encourages us, who, those of us who are abiding with Him, walking with Him, continuing in faith and belief. But the warning of the book of Hebrews is for those who are beginning to drift, there is reason to fear just as the Israelites drifted in Numbers 13 and 14, and they missed out on the promises of God. It says here, Therefore, let us fear, lest anyone should seem to come short of it. The explicit teaching of the book of Hebrews is that we must continue in belief. We must abide in Christ. And if you find yourself in a place where you're falling away, I think the Bible says to you today, repent, get right, come back to him. Get out of the way whatever has enticed you. Forsake whatever is drawing you away. Whatever has seduced you, squash it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Get beyond it, get right with Jesus Christ and walk with him in intimacy and obedience. The Bible's explicit about that. For those of us who are drifting, there's a dire warning And the danger of drifting again is that it leads to disbelief. And what we risk in disbelief is not entering his rest. Now, we'll define his rest in a moment, though it's hard to do. But what we must understand is that there is much at stake here. There's much to be lost in drifting from the Lord. Are we not warned in chapter 2, verse 1? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away. And the consequence of drifting is loss of all the promises of God. Just as the Exodus generation lost out at Kadesh Barnea. If you are currently in a habit of saying no to the Lord, get right. right. Because he's got so many good things stored up for you. His plan for your life is better than yours. His wisdom far surpasses yours. His goodness and his graciousness are infathomable, beyond comprehension. And when we drift, there is nothing there but loss. Charles Spurgeon has a quote on this. I'll recommend this book. 2200 quotations from the writings of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, everything he said was quotable. He's absolutely wonderful. About 100 years ago, though, speaking, he said this on this topic. He said, many a man would have been a missionary, would have stood and preached his master's gospel boldly, but he had unbelief. Make a giant unbelieving, and he becomes a dwarf. Faith is the Samsonian lock of the Christian, referring to Samson. Remember when his hair was cut, he lost his power. Faith is the Samsonian lock of the Christian, Cut it off, and you may put out his eyes. He can do nothing. The call of the word of God today is for those of us who have entered into salvation by grace through faith to continue in faith. And when we begin to drift because of the seductions of the world, and we start to say no to the Lord, and that callousness enters our heart, it is often imperceivable. It's like drifting in a boat. You don't even know that you're drifting as long as the seas are calm. It's not until the storms come and you're in desperate need of the anchorage that you realize you've drifted off course. It's like navigating via airplane or compass. If you're off just a degree, it may seem like nothing initially, but the further you head down your route, the further you get off course. And so we need to ask our Christian ourselves here, halfway through this year, are we off course in any way? Have we begun to drift? Wake up. It's often imperceivable until the storms of life hit, and then we find that we've lost hold of the anchor to our soul, who is Christ Jesus, and we've drifted from the anchorage, and we find ourselves in the open seas, and that's when we get overwhelmed, and we make worse decisions. Today is the day to make the right decision in light of who Jesus is and what his word says. And he is to be feared. Those of you who are in the habit of saying no to God, who do you think you're dealing with? It's not your school teacher. He's not your mom. You don't have a right to say no to the living God. Hallelujah. Who do we think we're dealing with? Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Now, that word rest, it means just what you think it means. It means to stop working. It means a cessation of activity or work. It means a place of rest. And so theologically now, broadly, it's applied to our salvation. When we talk about, trying to break it down here, when we talk about entering into his rest, the first thing that we realize is it's salvific language. It's entering into the rest that we have when the burden of sins is removed by accepting by faith Christ's substitutionary death upon the cross. So applied to God's rest, it means no more self-effort as far as salvation is concerned. It means the end of trying to please God by our feeble fleshly works. It's receiving by grace through faith God's favor and forgiveness. Amen? Amen? So we want to be sure that we enter into his rest with regards to salvation. But then there is also the daily component of rest. And this is available to every believer. And, and where often the disconnect happens is, is that we've been sold here in America a bill of, of fire insurance. Well, if I just raise my hand, if I just say the prayer, if I, if I just show up, then, then I'm all good, and I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I'm pretty sure he didn't call us to that. I'm pretty sure he said, follow me. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So you see, we're to follow the Lord in daily rest. Now what does it mean to follow him into daily rest? It means freedom from those things that worry us and disturb us. That's available in Jesus Christ. It means to be able to lie down in peace, to be able to be settled, to be fixed, to be secure, to sleep at night. It means to have an abiding confidence in who he is, what he has done, and what he is doing. It means to keep trust in his character and his wisdom. It means to lean on. And all of these things are available in the person of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. And so all these things that enter into our lives, fear, anxiety, All this stuff that we all deal with. Is there anyone here that doesn't deal with those things? I want to be your buddy. I want to hang out with you. (laughs) I deal with these things weekly. The weight of the world and relationships and our own failures, all these things. Jesus Christ is the sole place where we find rest in light of those. Where we are able to receive peace that surpasses comprehension. Call me naive, call me a literalist, call me fundamentalist, call me whatever you want, but I believe that Jesus is able to give us rest in this lifetime. Real, meaningful rest. I like the way that uh, St. Augustine said it many years ago. He said, thou movest us to delight in praising thee. For thou has formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Now that's true before we come to salvation in Jesus Christ. There is that longing, there's that wandering, that wondering, that what in the world is missing feeling. And then all of a sudden, We come to the knowledge that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that substitutionary death, rose from the dead, and lives to give us life. We receive that by faith. And can I get a witness? That wondering and that wandering is dealt with in an instant. Amen? And so the Christian life should continue, but seldom does it. Enter in the distractions... The seductions, the selfishness, the nose to God. Beginning to burgeon then is the hardness, yielding disbelief, leading to disobedience, and making the proverbial mess, where we then miss the rest. That rest that is available to us, we find that we've missed out on that, we've made such a mess. The rest is still available. Repent. Repent doesn't mean to say, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. It's not what it means. Literally, it means to do a 180 and about face, to change direction. Anciently, it was used as a sailing term, a navigational sailing term. And if someone was coming out of the harbor and they ran into a storm, the navigation guy would yell, Repent! And everyone on the boat would go, I'm sorry! No. They all understood that it meant that everyone had to get together and the ship had to do an about face lest it suffer destruction. Does everybody understand in the ship that every now and again there is an about face that is required in life lest we drift into destruction? And it may be today that your heart is so hard that you're unable to see even those areas where you're off just a degree. We need the Holy Spirit to illuminate these things. Because remember from the last chapter that those Israelites, the Exodus generation, did not experience the promises, the proverbial rest of Canaan through unbelief. As it says in verse 2, For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, talking about Jesus, just as they also, talking about the good news of Canaan that was preached to them. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. It wasn't united by faith in those who heard. United by faith, literally in the Greek, it means it wasn't mixed with faith or commingled with faith. Said differently, there was not fertile ground in their hearts in which the word could yield fruit. Jesus spoke about this in the parable of the soils and said that we want to have hearts that are full of good soil so that when the word of God is sown, it yields a harvest, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. See, when you cultivate that heart, life changes easy by the power of the Holy Spirit working with the word. But some of these Israelites, they had said no some nine times, and then in the pivotal moment, at the crux of it all, There was a lack of faith. Now, understand this. There were hundreds of thousands of them. Some estimate perhaps millions in the Exodus. And they all believed. They all believed. And they all saw and heard the same thing. I mean, who who in Israel wouldn't believe? They they all believed. They all saw the Red Sea part. There's (laughs) nothing not to believe in. They all saw the Red Sea part. They had all tasted of the manna that God provided. They had all drank of the water that the Lord brought from the rock. They had all seen the glory and the terror of the Lord at Mount Sinai. They had all followed the same pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They all believed. But what astounds me, what actually scares me is that only two trusted Joshua and Caleb. They came out after spying out the land and said, let's do this thing. God said it, we believe it, let's do it. Literally in the Hebrew, they said, we will devour the inhabitants of Canaan. Literally in the Hebrew, they will be like bread for us. God said it, we can do it. They had trust. Why wouldn't they have trust? God had brought them this far. But you see, the others have been cultivating a heart that said no. And so now they had completely lost perspective, and at the pivotal moment of life, they didn't simply trust the Lord. There is a difference between belief and trust, or said differently, belief plus trust equals faith. And that's what we're looking for is faith. Belief plus trust equals faith. There were many in Israel that believed but not many that trusted. You see, mere belief agreeing with isn't enough. James chapter two, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Demons believe in Jesus Christ. Demons believe in the Trinity. Demons believe that Jesus is the son of God. Demons know that he is the only unique savior of the world. Demons believe that he rose from the dead. You believe, that's fine. Demons also believe, but they shudder. The question becomes, what makes you any different than a demon? Trust. Belief plus trust equals faith. Demons believe. Don't tell me you believe. That's meaningless. Do you trust in the Lord? First, for your salvation, for your eternal security, for the forgiveness of sins. Do you trust in his substitutionary death upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his uniqueness as the only son of God and the only savior of the world? And then secondly, do you trust him for daily living? Do you trust him to make good on his promises? Do you trust that he can deal with your financial situation? Do you trust that he can deal with your addiction? Do you trust that he can deal with your bitterness, with your brokenness, with the way that you were abused? Do you trust him? Because that's what we're called into. And I got to tell you that he is trustworthy. (laughs) He is absolutely trustworthy. It was insanity for the Israelites to stand on the border of the promised land and say, "Mm, no, I just kind of wish we had died in Egypt. It was insanity. The Lord is trustworthy. Trust plus belief equals faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And faith, true faith, is always accompanied by fruit. James 2.17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. You know what's the evidence of whether or not we trust the Lord? This is going to hurt. It hurts me. It hurt me in the last service. It's going to hurt again. The evidence of whether or not we trust the Lord is our obedience. Our obedience to him is our trust on display. do you trust the Lord? You'll know according to how you obey. That's the pure evidence. We need to trust Christ for our rest as it pertains to our salvation, freeing us from the burden of guilt and the gnawing conscience, and we need to trust him in our daily living according to his character, his almighty God, and a loving Savior that gives us rest as we place our burdens on him. Did not our Lord say, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, where Israel went wrong and where we are being warned is this issue of trusting. And what helps us think about it is this. Trust responds. They heard the word. They heard the same thing and saw the same thing that Joshua and Caleb had seen. But for them, the word wasn't united with faith or mixed with or commingled with faith. Faith is active, remember. Faith responds. Trust responds. We hear the word of God and we respond to what God is saying or as he speaks to us prophetically by his spirit. We respond to what do you see? What we had at Kadesh Barnea with the Exodus generation were a bunch of. Well-informed, but non-responsive people. They were very well-informed, but they were unresponsive. Very well-informed. They'd walked with Moses. They'd received the Ten Commandments. They saw them with their own eyes. They'd seen the glory of the Lord. They'd seen all these things. Very well-informed, but unresponsive. This is where we push it a little closer to home, because many of us are just that, well-informed, but unresponsive Christians. There's a tremendous privilege to being a Christian in America. For example, right now in Eritrea, a little country in Africa, there are four pastors that are facing the death penalty for preaching things that I'm preaching today. There are a few thousand who are in captivity for their faith in Eritrea, Hundreds of them kept in metal shipping containers with no place for bodily functions, as many as could fit in sweltering heat for their faith in Jesus Christ. We're in America, we know nothing of that. It's a tremendous privilege. It's a wonderful privilege. We shouldn't be ashamed of being American Christians. We should rejoice. But did not our Lord say, to whom much is given, much is required? We are very well informed. Most of us own multiple Bibles. There are villages in China where they circulate around a single page from village to village to village. Most of us have multiple Bibles, multiple translations multiple commentaries, study Bibles, and in America, we have a wealth of preachers and we have Christian radio, sort of have Christian TV. Incredibly well-informed. It's a great privilege. But the problem that we see is that we've become unresponsive. And we are in danger of being just like the Exodus generation who were incredibly privileged, for they saw the hand of the Lord and the mighty outstretched arm that delivered them from Pharaoh. They saw the parting of the sea. They were brought to the border of the land, incredibly well informed. They knew the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 15, 21, so on and so forth, but unresponsive. We need to ask ourselves, almost halfway through the year, is the heart tender toward the Lord? Or has there been a drift in 2008? It's almost perceptible, but in moments like these, I think the Holy Spirit, by grace, gives us a moment of clarity and says, look, you're drifting in this area. And unresponsiveness leads to that drift, which leads to unbelief. We turn the corner in verse 3, which says, for we who have believed, we enter that rest. In the same way that he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." So there's a distinction the author's trying to draw. He's trying to shed a ray of hope now for his audience saying, okay, come on. Let's be in the we that believe that enter in. Because they were in danger of being in the they that didn't believe that missed out. So let's be in the we that believe that enter in and not in the they that didn't believe ancient Israel. Although God's works were finished from the foundation of the world, it says. So we who have believed enter that rest. That word believe is very strong. Unless you think I'm contradicting myself saying that belief is not enough. It's a Greek word, "pistuo." It could be translated to have faith. It means this, to be persuaded, to rely upon, to trust. It's a fully convinced acknowledgement, a self-surrendering fellowship, a fully assured and unswerving confidence. We who trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, our eternity, and our daily living, we enter into that rest, not only the eternal rest that we have promised in him, but the daily rest. The daily rest. Don't get too ethereal about your Christianity. Don't get so heavenly minded that you're missing out on the earthly blessings. It's not all about getting to heaven. In fact, if I understand my Bible right, really? Really? That's good. That was funny, huh? Wow. Hmm. Can you schedule an appointment with me? If I understand my Bible right, Jesus is coming back to establish His kingdom here on earth. Here on earth. If I understand the atonement right, He's redeeming not only humanity but all of creation. All of creation is redeemed by the cross of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he will set right every wrong. Yeah. And those who are in the household of faith will rule and reign with him on earth for the millennium and into the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah. So don't just blow off this earthly experience and think, well, it'll all pan out in the end. I'll just get to heaven everything will be hunky-dory. <laughs> in fact, our experience at the coming of the Lord is And the millennial kingdom, our experience in ruling and reigning and serving with him will be determined by our faithfulness in this lifetime. So we need to be cultivating daily entering into his rest by trust, trusting him with the gnarly stuff in our life, with the little stuff in our life, the minutia and the grand things. And it says there, Those who have believed enter in. Enter in the Greek is in the present tense, meaning it's a continuous action. Meaning for us, we need to think about it this way, that we have already entered into his rest through salvation, but now we need to daily be entering into his rest and practical living. Daily trusting him with the things that burden us, with the difficulties Daily trusting him with our satisfaction, lest we find ourselves warming ourselves by the enemy's fires, Peter did in Luke 22. Look what it says in verse 11 real quick. Verse 11 says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Be diligent to enter that rest. That's an action word. To be diligent means to make haste, to be zealous to do so, Uh, to be earnest, to do it to the utmost. It's a verb that speaks of intensity of effort toward the realization of a goal. So we're to be daily diligent of entering into the rest of Jesus Christ because that's the good place, that's the right place, that's the safe place. Did not our Lord say to Mary in Luke 10, Mary, you have chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from you. But Martha was so worried and bothered by all her distractions. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Only a few things are necessary. Really, only one, said the Lord, and Mary has chosen the good part. What was Mary doing? Resting at the feet of the Lord. That is the right, good, safe, sanctified place to be. But, man, and I hesitate to say this because I feel like a broken record, but so be it. We are living in a world that is increasingly anti-Christ, And so experiencing the rest of Jesus Christ becomes more and more pivotal because it is from there which we draw our strength. Strength to face the challenges of the day, the temptations of the day. Anybody here ever tempted? Anybody here needs strength to face those things? It is so available in the person of Jesus Christ. Anybody here ever have the devil mess with you? I'll be honest, big time. You ought to be a pastor sometime. It's like you got your cell phone number or something. But you see, the Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to the Lord and he'll draw near to you. What's beautiful about this rest is it's called his rest in verse one. It's called his rest, God's rest. In verse three, he calls it my rest. That means that the rest that is available to us in the person of Jesus Christ is not according to who we are or what we have done or what we can do, but the rest that is available to us is according to who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. Understand, that means it's perfect rest. God is at perfect rest because he's in control of all things. Jesus is a Prince of Peace. He has perfect peace because He's in control of all things. Look what Jesus said in John 14, verse 27. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your heart be troubled. Let it not be fearful. He says, I'm gonna give you peace, but I'm giving you my peace. Think about that. The peace of the Lord is perfect peace. He is the prince of peace because he is in control. This is wonderful truth of Christianity. You see, the Bible teaches once again when Jesus comes that he is going to right every wrong. Even though the world in these days is increasingly antichrist and rebellion to him, he will right every wrong. That stands in the face of progressivism, which is sort of the, the modern uh, mantra and ideology. We're hearing it a ton now because we're in an election year. And so we're hearing all this stuff of, it's going to get better. And we have a plan for a better America and a better world. And we know how to make it better. They're not telling us how, but they have plans. We're going to make it better. And that's what humanity has been saying for thousands of years. Positive progressivism. Humanity is going to evolve and progress and things will get better as we get better. Okay, listen. The ideology has utterly proven to be false because there is in the world now more famine, more torture, more wars, more torment, more perversion than there has ever been in the world. Progressivism is a secular humanist lie. Progressivism has no ability to deal with evil, either in theory or in reality or in retrospect. The cross of Jesus Christ is his no to evil and his yes to righteousness. And what Jesus Christ does through the cross is he deals with evil Retroactively. In other words, when he comes, he will set every wrong right. You see, the idea of human evolution and progress has no ability to deal with evil retrospectively. Okay, so things are going to get better. Where's the justice for the Holocaust? Where's the justice for what's happening in Sudan? Where's the justice for the unjust wars and the murder and the rape and the maiming and the abortions? Where's the justice for those? In the human idea of progress, it provides none. Only in the cross of Jesus Christ is there justice because in the cross, the world is redeemed and when he comes again, he will right every wrong as the judge and the ruler and the king and he will set it all right and there is redemption in that. Verse four. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Uh, What we have here, as we finish up, is an explicit analogy between the rest available to us and the rest that God took on the seventh day of creation. The rest that's available to us is like the Bible's teaching here, the rest that he took on the seventh day of creation. The rest that he took was joyous, satisfying, and fruitful. Joyous, satisfying, and fruitful. Job chapter 38 verse 7 tells us that at creation the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. They were echoing the joy of the creator that he carried into that Sabbath rest. And so there is rest for the Christian available through intimacy with Jesus Christ that is joyous. Secondly, the rest that the Lord took after creation was satisfying. This is a clear implication of God saying over and over again in Genesis chapter one, and it was good. He would make it and say, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then he rested, implying that he was satisfied. In the person of Jesus Christ, there is available for you and I satisfaction. Rest in that satisfied state because of who he is. And then thirdly, his rest was a working rest. His his rest was productive. It was fruitful. Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Yes, he rested, but God was still working. And so there is available for you and I a fruitful, joyful, satisfying rest In intimacy with Jesus Christ. That is why we want to keep the heart soft. We want to keep the spirit saying, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. We want to say yes to Him. Because, see, what He does then is He leads us in paths of righteousness for His namesake. And He makes us to lie down by still water. And He leads us into green pastures. And He prepares a banqueting table for us in the presence of our enemies. And goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. He leads us as we say, yes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The sheep obey the shepherd. When the sheep stop obeying, they start wanting. Verse 6, and we finish. Since therefore it remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day saying, today, 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 if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, meaning don't get caught up in what Israel did. Be concerned about what you need to do. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. In other words, if the promised land was a complete fulfillment, then David in Psalm 95 wouldn't be talking about a further rest. It's fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Our Sabbath rest is our relationship with Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. Amen. Verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works just as God did. The same way we, we cease from striving. Oh, I love what Psalm 46.10 says. Cease striving and know that I am God. Doesn't that sound good for today and tomorrow? Cease striving and know that I am God. He is in control and He is good. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. To cease striving means to let go, to relax, to trust. Isaiah 30 verse 15 For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you are not willing. Church, be those who are willing. Be those who are willing. Respond to the last verse, verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. The final warning is this. Be careful who your influences are. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't kid yourself. Who you hang out with makes a difference. I try to surround myself with godly people because I want to be that way, because I need that help. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't follow a bad example. Yes, Jesus ministered to the prostitutes and the drunkards and the dregs of society, but he did not join them in their debauchery. He was altogether righteous. Be where you can be righteous. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word and your warning. And thank you for your mercy Lord surely there's much to be done in our hearts now and so we stay engaged and we continue in an attitude of worship and we ask the Holy Spirit you come and apply the word to our hearts Lord we need you to reveal the little areas where we're wayward where we're off track need you to reveal them and by your kindness, Lord, by your kindness, draw us to repentance. Thank you that you are merciful and good and kind. Thank you that you have rest for us. Lord, some in here are weary and heavy laden. Help them to come to you now. Help them to come to the throne of grace that they may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. Draw near to us, Lord, as we draw near to you. We need your healing presence. Your redemptive work in our midst, Lord. You're so good. Beautify that word repentance in our hearts, for from it come times of refreshing from being in the presence of the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, work in your people. Prayer team is here to help you. Communion is here to remind you. Spirit of God is here to change and transform.